If you've got your Bible with you, and I, I pray that you do, would you open to Deuteronomy chapter 5? Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then we're also going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 6. So, however you feel most capable of doing that, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6. And when you find your place there, I know that you've just taken a seat, but I'll have you stand and reverence of the reading of the Lord's word. We will conclude our series on the Ten Commandments this morning. This will be the final of that series. And I'm uh, thankful that the Lord has given us an opportunity to do that. We're going to read through the Ten Commandments one more time out of Deuteronomy chapter 5 together. Uh, and then uh, I want to carry you over to Matthew and, and um, show you some New Testament application for the commandment that we see today. So we're beginning in chapter 5, Deuteronomy, verse 6. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And thou shalt have none other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them, for I am the Lord thy God. I, I the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, as the Lord thy God commanded thee. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt do not do any work, uh, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine donkey, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember, thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee, to keep the Sabbath day. Honor thy father and thy mother as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, and thy days that thy days may be prolonged, that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Verse 17, thou shalt not kill, neither shalt thou commit adultery, neither shalt thou steal, neither shalt thou bear false witness against thy neighbor. And verse 21 is the tenth commandment in the our passage today. Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is thy neighbor's. The commandment, obviously, is thou shalt not covet. In Matthew chapter 6, in verses 19 through 24, the Lord Jesus, still in the Sermon on the Mount, is making some New Testament application with this concept of covet. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 19, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through the steel. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through the steel. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You hear that? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee uh, be darkness, how great is that darkness. No, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's the New Testament principle of thou shalt not covet. And we'll share why in a moment. Let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, once again, we thank you for this time. Lord, I pray you bless the reading of your word. I pray, God, that you would give us uh, eyes, ears to hear, to see, hearts to obey. And Lord, help us as you seek to mold us into the image of your dear son. Father, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As I've stated, this last commandment, this 10th, commandment is quite simply you shall not covet if we want to define covet and we have been doing that and so for form and function we'll do that covet or covetous or covetousness uh, simply put inordinate desire for wealth or possessions or for another person's possessions and the the second would be having a craving for a possession that craving is something that is very hard to desire, or to, excuse me, to satisfy. You, you just can't get it fulfilled. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3.5, as he is speaking to believers there at the Church of Colossae, he says there in verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then he lists these things. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, which is basically evil desires, and he says covetousness, which is idolatry. If we have a hard time with that phraseology, mortified therefore your members which are upon the earth, uh, you could read that depending on what you're holding. Uh, you may see that in ESV, put to death the earthly uh, things that are in you, such as, and he lists those things. If you're looking at NASB, it would probably say something along the lines of, consider the members of your earthly body dead to these things. And so he's saying that those are a part of the old man that we put off, and those things that we put off are those fornication, uncleanness, and so on and so forth. And the latter of them is covetousness, or greed, you may read it in your scriptures, it's the same concept, and Paul says that greed, that covetousness, is idolatry. He's talking about that specifically. We spoke in the very beginning of this series, and we talked about the power and the place and the purpose of the Ten Commandments in the life of the believer, because who has not heard it stated that we don't need the Ten Commandments anymore, right? You hear that all the time, and that's not true. Uh, we don't need the Ten Commandments for salvation, and that's not why they were ever given. They weren't given for salvation. They were given for direction and literally condemnation. 
but there is still a place for them because they're in the inerrant, eternally settled word of God. They're in the canonized scripture. And so there is a place for them. And we recognize that they're not descriptive of some form or thing. They are prescriptive for some manner of living. And so when we see that, then we decided, okay, there's at least a twofold reason for those Ten Commandments in the life of the believer today. The first, we said, was revelatory. That is, they are revealing. They are pointing out to us our need for Christ because we're unable to keep them. And that pointing out is not a once and done thing. You don't need somebody to tell you one time uh, that you're not capable to, able to keep the Ten Commandments because your uh, own ego is going to convince you that you are able to keep the Ten Commandments. You need a constant reminder that you're not able to do that. And even if you could do that, you could not achieve righteousness therein. And so they are revelatory, pointing us to our need for Christ. As we say often, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. You are not good because of anything that you have done. You are not saved because anything that you have done. You're not going to heaven because of anything that you were done. You are any of those things simply in Christ because he died for you as you and in your place. And so you need that every day. So they're revelatory. They're also regulatory. They are a regulator. They, they are a boundary that we put up. And in that, they provide us for direction for living. And as we seek to fulfill the two great commandments, we remember the lawyer said unto the Lord, what is the greatest of the commandments? And the Lord said to the lawyer, there are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two hang all of the laws. And we recognize the division in the laws based on those two expo expositional statements made by the Lord. And so what we see in the regulatory aspect of the Ten Commandments is they help us to understand incremental steps to bring to fruition what that love of God with the whole person and what that love of the neighbor as you love yourself looks like and how it performs. So they're very needed in our life. We've already defined that the first four commandments are God word and the latter uh, uh, six commandments are man word. We can say they are, uh, some of them, those first four are vertical towards God. The others are horizontal towards other men. Uh, if you want to bring that down to a simplified statement, this is the truth. Verse, uh, chap commandments one through four teach us that it's impossible to love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. If there is any other God in your life, if there are any other images or if you determine that you do not have time to set aside to do so, you can't do it without those three things. It's very simple, very practical. The latter, uh, verses 5 through 10, or commandments 5 through 10, they teach us very simply, it's almost uh, comical to say it this way. You can't possibly love your neighbor as yourself if you're jealous of your things if you lie about him to other people, if you steal from him, if you pardon me, sleep with his wife, or finally if you murder him, you absolutely have not shown love towards your neighbor in those manners, right? It's almost comical. But that's what the Lord was doing with those Ten Commandments, and that's how they walk us into a comprehension of, man, I'm, I'm rotten. 
I'm rotten without the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. I'm rotten without the forgiveness of Christ. During my research for this final commandment, I found the following comments, and, and you can look these up. They're on desiringgod.org. That's, that's, that's a pretty safe place to go if you ever have questions. Uh, and, and I just took several statements and, and created one paragraph with them. So this is not a direct quote. But this is what it said there concerning this commandment. The opposite of covetousness is contentment in God. It's a true statement. When contentment in God decreases, covetous for gain increases. It's idolatry because the contentment that the heart should be getting from God, it starts getting from something else. So covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God or the, the vice of that would be losing your contentment in God so that you start to seek it elsewhere. Have you ever considered that the 10, he says, begin and end with virtually the same commandment? This was eye-opening for me. The first is that you have no other gods before me, and the last is that you shall not covet, and they're almost equivalent commands because coveting is desiring anything more than God in a way that betrays a loss of contentment and satisfaction in him. Final statement, covetousness is a heart divided between two gods. Isn't that so true? We've referenced Matthew chapter 5 all along because in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord was taking the laws that they were trying to aesthetically uh, please and he was showing them that they had internal motives that were just as dire as the breaking of the law. And we've looked at that and what we've come to, this conclusion, or I have and I assume that we agree on this, is that more often than not there is an issue with the heart. So we have to guard our heart. And we have to guard our heart at the thought level because sin begins, and James is going to prove this for us in a few weeks, sin begins at the thought level. And because of that, that thought then becomes a desire, and often that desire becomes an intent or a motive for action, and that all festers into a sin. James says it this way, when you're enticed of yourself and it conceives and brings forth sin. I said the same thing just now. That's what happens. That thought becomes a desire. That desire becomes a motive. That motive becomes an action. And that action commits a sin. That's how that works. And that's what the Lord is teaching in these few verses or of these few chapters of Matthew. And it helps us when we understand that to see the depravity that we're all born in. As we stated uh, last week, one of the huge lies in the world is that man is basically good. You're not basically good. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, you're not basically good. It's, this helps us see that depravity. And so that sermon continues in chapter 6 and 7. And in those chapters, the Lord shares several things. Uh, prohibitions against hypocrisy, which we all would say, yeah, I don't like hypocrites. 
the model for effectual prayer. Pray this way. Instructions in fasting. Hey, when you fast, don't walk around looking miserable because then you're getting everybody's attention, right? That's not what that's about. Uh, directions concerning treasure and the loyalties of the human heart. That's what we're talking about here. If indeed covetousness is a heart divided between two gods, then Christ's teachings on treasure will get us home and understanding. I have three very quick things here, and I know you don't believe that, but I'm going to prove it to be true. <laughs> we just read Matthew chapter 6. So in 19 through 21, that's that, we, we hear that all the time. We, that's a platitude. It's become an axiomatic phrase. You see it on plaques and bumper stickers. Lay not for yourself treasures up in heaven where it can be stolen or corrupted or, or on the earth, I should say, but rather lay it up in heaven where it can't be. Uh, that's what he's saying. Well, what he's, what he's doing there, that this is, uh, the Lord is painting a word picture. And in that moment, treasure represents love. I'm not talking about uh, Certainly not erotic love, and I'm not talking about love that you desire. I'm talking about love that you put out. That thing that you love. Don't let that thing that you love be down here. Let that thing that you love be up there. Very practical, right? It's very simple. Uh, it is, that's what it's saying. Treasure is truly representing love there. That concept of laying up treasure... When we hear that and we think laying up treasure, it feels as if we're speaking about material things. In fact, even the Lord in some of his parables uses material things to make that point. Remember the man that had the abundant crops and he was going to tear down his barn and build bigger barns? And then the Lord said, thou fool, tonight. And then we all walk around thinking, oh, I better not build a bigger barn. I need not have too many possessions. But it's not about the possessions. It was about the fact that that man believed he was providing for himself. He gave no honor and glory to God. That's what the Lord is talking about here. This love, this treasure represents who do you love? Are you loving self and providing and feeding and admiring self and exalting self here in this earth, in the temporal or are you loving the Savior, exalting the Savior, and doing the things you do in order to accomplish that eternal reward? That's the teaching. And, and we, we get this idea about these, uh, these treasures. But what we understand is just as in chapter 5 of Matthew, what is at play here is the desire, the affection of the heart, or the motive. That's what he's talking about. So he's not addressing material things. I believe his real aim is at the desire level. And so we just take a very mundane approach. and We want to try to put some form of an example up there that's down to earth that we can understand. I would say this to you, and, and, and I hope that this comes across. Uh, if When we start thinking about treasures or idolatry or you know uh, unfruitful desires, oftentimes we consider the possession the coddling of the possession, the worship of the possession, and the protection of the possession. We think that's the sinful behavior. And that is an extrapolation of the sinful behavior. But more, the sinful behavior is in the desire, the work, the planning, the purchasing the thing, 
because that requires just as much dedication, just as much drive, just as much determination, and therein becomes the problem because the, evidently we are uh, focusing on that thing and the acquisition of it rather than on the Lord. So the, uh, you know, just for just for examples, and I'm not trying to call anybody out, but the big mansion may not be the problem. It was the intentions and the desires and the motives to achieve the mansion. The mansion's just the fruit of the desire. And they've had to sell themselves into whatever bondage was necessary in order to get that. And that doesn't mean that everybody that lives in a big house sold themselves to get there. We're talking about the desire for something. I can give you, I, I, I like being transparent. I can give you a very earth, very mundane example. Uh, I, I desire, I'm talking about me, Corey. I desire a, a classic car. I want one bad. I'm just telling you like it is. I mean, I want one. I, I've had them before. I've had shops. I've built little street rods and hot rods, and I want one. And every time I can rub four or five nickels together, I start thinking, I'm I'm, it's time. I'm going to get me one. And I will get in a loop of weeks, weeks, looking at Marketplace, trying to find some guy whose wife got mad at him and he's trying to give away a really good car. <laughs> when I'm doing that, my focus has shifted. And I have to get my focus back where it needs to be. I'm going to tell you something, whether or not you know it, uh, you do that, we all do that every single day. We either wake up focused on the right things or we wake up focused on the wrong things. And we have, that is what the ability in 1 John 1, 9 is for. So here we, we have this picture that, that truth, or excuse me, treasure represents love. And when we are focused on the wrong treasure, we lose the consideration of doing the more needful things, such as worshiping God, reading the word, the consideration of the goodness of God, the gratefulness for the grace of God. All of that takes a back seat. And in that moment, we become singularly focused upon something that is the wrong thing in relation to God. It's not categorically the wrong thing. It is comparatively the wrong thing. We want it to be categorically wrong because we want to say, well, everybody that does this is wrong. And I don't do that, so I'm not wrong. Everybody that doesn't do this is wrong, and I do that, so I'm not wrong. That's what we want. That's not how it works because it works at the heart level, at the desire and the motive and the intent level. Earthly things will fade and wilt, heavenly treasures never. Check your heart for its desires, that reveals your treasure. That's where it's at. So we see that treasure represents love. Is my love rightly motivated to the Lord? Then in verses 22 and 23, he does that thing with the light of the body and the eye. And I get that can be kind of difficult, but it really shouldn't be. What, what is happening there is truth is represented by the light. 
And sin or falsehood is represented by dark. So about 15 years ago, I'm 55, most of you know that, I'm 55. About 15 years ago, when I was 40, 41 years old, somewhere around that time, I was telling my dad one night, uh, one day, I said, man, i got to do something about my study at home. I need to get some can lights or some recess lights or something put in there. And he said, why? Now, mind you, I'd lived in the home for 15 years. He said, why? I said, it's too dark. He said, why is it too dark? I said, I can't read good. He said, you don't need canned lights, you need glasses. <laughs> and he was right. It was very hurtful. I mean, and then I went to the doctor and I said, hey, I need some medicine. Something's wrong with my eyes. And the doctor said, how old are you? I said, well, wait a minute. I don't, that's going the wrong direction. The, the light or the eye lets light in. That's how the eye works. And, and I'm not a, certainly not a doctor, but Solomon says, uh, describing his old age vision, he talks about the dimming of the lights. How many of us in here who have to wear either prescriptions or magnifiers, you really want to get where the light's good, right? You, you know, you get in a grocery store and you can't see it, you go looking for a light, you know, and you're like <laughs> trying to get under the light because light reveals and the eye lets light in. That's what he's saying here, the, the light of the body is the eye. Now, why is he saying that? Well, there's a couple of things that's going on there. First, we have to understand exactly what he says. So, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, the whole body shall be full of light. But if your eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. And then he goes on to say, how dark is that darkness? It's very dark. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean for the light to be single? Well, you have to do a little, little looking around there. And I didn't go crazy with this because that's not the, the point, but sincere is a good word. Good is a good word. And some of your other versions have that. Clear is a good word. Focused on the right thing is a good word. That the, All of those things work in that area. So if your eye is focused on the right thing. If your eye is singularly looking at the right thing, if your eye clearly sees the truth, you're going to be flooded with light. And light always dispels darkness, always. And so we know that that is true, hermeneutically speaking, because of John chapter 1 and John chapter 3. Now listen to this just for a moment. In John chapter 1, the Lord is described of uh, as the light that came to light the whole world. Well, what is the Lord? The Lord is truth. We also see in that area that John the Baptist is referred to as he was not that light. He was the one called to witness to that light. So the light is Christ. In John chapter 3, when the Lord is interacting with Nicodemus, he says, this is the condemnation of men. That what? Light came into the world and they feared the light and ran to the darkness. And he specifically says, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. The Lord is talking here about flooding your body, your person with the light, and the light is truth. It is truth. 
In this passage, he's talking about the focus. What are you focused on? That's the difference. If we have an earthly focus, that's a temporal focus, a selfish focus. We're going to be filled with darkness and the lies that it brings with it. But if we have a heavenly focus, an eternal focus, an upward focus, you could even say an outward focus, then we'll be filled with light and the truth will then reveal the pitfalls and the dangers that we need to avoid. This is not in your outline, but listen to me. Your eyes, your ears, and your mouth are the three primary gateways to your soul. It is dependent on what you see, what you hear, and what you partake of. Why should I not be taking in all sorts of Let's go to the furthest extreme. Pornography with my eyes because it's going directly into my soul. You know what it's flooding it with? It's flooding it with darkness. Why should I not be listening to filth? Because it's going directly to my soul. Why should I not be partaking of things that alter my state of awareness, my state of consciousness, or my personality? Because they're going directly to my soul. They are gates. The eye is a gate. What you see affects who you are. And you have to be very careful with that. There's at least two details there. That first is the eyes, the gate. It is the manner, manner through which truths and or fallacies invade your heart. So you have to guard that. Remember the old song, be careful of lies what you see. Be careful of lies what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful. Right? Yeah. It's that. It's that. The second is the two, light and dark, do not peacefully coexist. Listen to me. They do not get along. They can't be in the same place at the same time. They cannot peacefully coexist. One drives the other one out or overtakes the other one. There is a constant, constant, constant battle or war or competition or contest, whatever word you want to be using, that is, uh, that, that, is, that is continually going on in your purpose. And when, for whatever reason, whether you get busy, you get tired, you get angry, you get hurt, whatever the reason, when you turn from the light, the darkness begins to creep up because you're filled with it. But when you'll turn to the light and clear that eye, single that eye, focus that eye, on the light, it will begin to flood who you are and push that darkness out. He says there, when that darkness takes over, how great is that darkness? Isn't that frightening? It's, it's frightening to me. Lastly, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two lords. Let's put it that way. That's what he says there in verse 24. That's, that's really the conclusion. That's the Lord's conclusion to that little paragraph there. He's concluding that thought. He's saying to them, look, when I'm talking to you about treasures, when I'm talking to you about heaven and earth, when I'm talking to you about light and dark, I'm talking to you about two masters. You can't serve two masters. You, you cannot serve two masters. You, you can't uh, serve your, uh, yourself and the Lord. You can't 
uh, when he's thinking about love and treasure, you, you, one or the other has got to go. Either God and eternity and the things of righteousness are your treasure, your love, or carnal, earthly, temporal things are. But the two cannot compromise one with the other. Light, either truth is your light or it is not. And in the end, those things become your Lord and there cannot be two lords. The name Lord means master. It is in, it's self-indicative that there's one. One is supreme. The finality of the concept is this. You can't straddle. You, you may not compromise. Light and darkness do not blend. Now, I didn't say that you do not straddle. Because a lot of people do. A lot of us do at times. I did not say that you, uh, no one straddles, no one compromises. I said you can't. Because when you do, it compromises the truth so badly that it's no longer true. It's no longer right. It's not a little bit of truth. It's either true or it's not. God is either the God of your life and heaven is your home and truth is your banner and the flesh, the world, and Satan are your enemies or the reverse is true. Uh, if we could comprehend that, and look, we, we all struggle with it. I'm standing up here before you telling you that we all struggle with it. The, the reason we struggle with it is because there is a continual war between the old man and the new man. And the old man is telling you, you're not a bad person. You don't do bad things. You do that for them and do this for you. It'll all work out in the wash. But when we do that, we begin to lose. If my eye is true, singularly focused on the light, God will be magnified in my vision. His desires will become and they will be becoming. They will continue becoming my desires. His sovereignty will be my security. I'll, I'll be able to know where the Lord's in control. I was just telling somebody last night, and again, I don't talk about uh, politics a whole lot. I will uh, if we're not here. Uh, I just don't, you know, uh, I, the, the main thing is the main thing. But I was just telling somebody last night, if it wasn't for my belief that God is sovereign and that he's working a plan, uh, I would be gone. <laughs> uh, you'd be able to find me. I'd be somewhere on the other side of a mountain, uh, holed up, because it looks bad. I mean, it looks real bad to me. It looks like it's bad and getting worse. But God's sovereign. This is part of his program. And I belong to him. And so I just, I, even so, Lord, it bothers me, but I trust you. His sovereignty is my security. His righteousness is my relief. I know he's going to do the right thing. I know he is. The Bible says he'll do the right thing. So the, what does that mean about where our nation is heading? Well, just be honest with yourself. Our nation is headed towards judgment. That's what that means. And so when is the judgment? Does it turn? Is there some improvement before the, the worst stuff comes? I don't know. God is sovereign. And his righteousness is my relief. His joy is my jubilee. Whatever makes him happy, that's what I want to do. Does that mean that every minute of every day I do that thing that should make the Lord joyful? No, I'm confident that at times I do the opposite. But I'm seeking to fulfill his joy. 
because in his joy is my jubilation. His blessed word is my light. That means I believe that. Psalm 119 teaches that 135 times. But I believe it, and so that means that I'm going to be daily in taking the word of God. I'm going to read it. I'm going to study it. I'm going to pray through it. I'm going to seek to conform to it. I heard somebody say the other day, Charles Spurgeon said, when you're reading the Bible and you disagree with it, you need to stop right that moment and pray and ask God to, to show you where you're wrong. Because the Bible's not wrong. And when I fail those things, and I will, I repent and I start again. And I get up the next day and I start again seeking to serve him with whatever fleeting life I have. But I will not seek to blend light and dark. I won't justify wrong. I won't make right that thing that can't be made right. I will not seek to straddle heaven and earth. I'll not be fooled into thinking that the two can coexist. They cannot coexist. Because anything that steals glory, focus, desire, obedience from God is idolatry. And that idolatry is motivated by covetousness. So every time I'm drawn to covet, <laughs> every time I see that 69 Chevelle, If you're listening, 68 to 72, any one of them will do. <laughs> I repent. And I look back to the light. And I say, Lord, you're enough. You've given me all I need. The, the question for you then becomes, where are your treasures? Where is that thing that you love? That thing that motivates you? Where is your heart? What is the focus of your eye? Is it light or is it dark? Would you stand with me this morning? Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. Of course, the altar's open if you want to uh, come and, and pray, or you can pray where you are. The Lord knows your need. The Lord is the one who can remedy whatever situation is evidently a problem in your life. Father, I pray you bless this time of invitation. I pray, God, that we would appeal unto you, that we would look to the light. Father, that we would repent where we're wrong. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Would you come this morning?